church history, we're talking about this this age of revolution at the beginning of the, the 19th century, and we're still talking about this chafing that we're putting in the basic category of everybody thinking, you're doing it wrong. Everybody else is doing it wrong, but I've got it figured out. I, I've got this better. And we're in 1830, which is actually a really good time to talk about Johnny Appleseed. Um, I was going to talk about him a little bit later, but... Um, uh, but Cody asked if I could talk about Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, I was just so, say, Cody and I have big discussion about that. Cody, if you're listening, this is for you. So Johnny Appleseed, um, you know, this is a, this is a picture that from the actual Disney Johnny Appleseed short. Um, traditional way of picturing him is this really nice guy, loves all animals, wears a tin pot on his hat, uh, his head for as a hat, walks around no shoes, carrying nothing but a Bible and a bag of apple seeds as he walks across country. Right? Have you ever heard anything about Johnny Appleseed? That's the traditional image, right? And that's probably just about right. That's 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 pretty accurate, given this 19, 1830 account of him by historian Henry Howe. It's like, yeah, he's still around, and this is what he's doing. This is the way he looks. This is pretty much the way he acts. That's Johnny Appleseed in a nutshell. Um, as always, though, it's helpful to figure out, well, why was he doing what he was doing? Because that sounds a little, a little kooky, right? Well, I'm kidding. I'm going to say, why, why is he planting apples? Because he loves apples. I, I like apples, but I'm not taking off my shoes, putting a pot on my head, and giving everybody apple seeds. You know, what? What? He was born, his name is John Chapman, and he's born in Massachusetts in 1774, but then goes out west like so many people did to find his fortune. Because, I mean, there's a whole lot of west out there, right? Increasingly, there's a whole lot of west. And so he apprenticed with an orchardist in Ohio guy who plants orchards and tends orchards. For about the next 50 years, he traveled all around the Ohio Territory planting apple seeds throughout Pennsylvania and, and Ohio and Iowa and or, uh, Indiana and Illinois, that whole area planting apple trees. But he wasn't just randomly planting apple trees. And this is, this is kind of important. He's not just randomly planting apple trees. He was planting apple orchards wherever he went. Doesn't sound like that's a big difference, but it's a big difference. He wasn't just going, ah, apple seed, apple, apple tree, oh, apple tree, you're gonna have clumps of apples. See, according to the law at the time, one way to establish a land claim was to plant an orchard of at least 50 trees. So he would go around planting orchards, walk from place to place, and I'd plant an orchard, and then go somewhere else, and plant an orchard, go somewhere else, and plant an orchard. Traveled by foot over uh, for over 100,000 miles over the span of 50 years, planting orchards, building nice little fences around them. Just making it really pretty. Everybody goes, you're a nut. He'd say, tell you what, neighbors, you're a nearby neighbor. If you would just make sure that this stays healthy, that's that's great. I'll come by in a couple years, and I'll, I'll buy it from you. Or I'll sell it to you, actually. So just, you can have all those apples. They're all yours. Just do me a favor and watch over them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's fine. Years later, he'd swing back around, lay claim to land, because he's like, I'm the one who planted this orchard. This is my land. And he could sell it to people, whomever he wanted to sell it to. By the time he died, at age 70, he made a stinking fortune. He was crazy rich. And even at the time, even after selling off tons of land and making lots of money, he still personally owned more than 1,200 acres in the, in the in, in this area. So, this is not just, hey, I love apples! This is him saying, you know, I, 
I'm making a stink load of money by doing this. Um, he also introduced so many apple trees across the nation, they became a national symbol. They're not just some eastern plant. Everybody in the nation says, Oh, America, there's apple trees everywhere you go. Used to be they were just in the, out east. No, no. Anywhere. In Ohio. In Ohio. <laughs> no, went through, yeah. What kind were they? Not eating apples. They oh. weren't for eating. They are way too tart. You couldn't eat them. Crab apples? No, not that bad. They were for Applejack. Hard cider. <laughs> <laughs> this is a huge industry back then. Is this is this is alcohol? That's that's what you made it for. And so you because the idea of eating apples that's a later development in America. That's a later strain of apples. Most people, if you said apples back in the early 1900s or 1800s, they wouldn't consider eating an apple. Why would you eat an apple? How about making it into a pie? Or yeah, because so now it's just yeah, not these apples. Not not for the most part. Interestingly, the Alka Dana Krobish, man, Randy's on fire! <laughs> Almost all of his trees were chopped down during Prohibition because they were not for eating. They were for making liquor. And so the FBI chopped down almost every single apple tree he made. Which, again, is why there's still a lot of apples throughout America and they are still a national symbol, but it's none of the apples that he made. It's none of the apples that he planted. So I love history because you sit there and go, Johnny Appleseed, and we all love apple pie. It's American. You go, yeah, Johnny Appleseed had nothing to do with apple pie. Not that kind of apple. Johnny Appleseed, the American, get drunk on apples. Thing. In fact, there's only one tree that's known to exist, one tree that he planted, still around, 175-year-old tree in a yard in Nova, Ohio. The only tree that's left that Johnny Appleseed that we know that Johnny Appleseed planted. The rest are gone. Anyway, but he was also planting religion wherever he went. Because he wasn't just a guy planting apples, and he wasn't just a guy planting apple orchards. That was a metaphor for, for one of the things he thought he was really doing, which is being a missionary. And I'm not just scattering seeds. I'm trying to plant orchards. I'm planting people who will then plant people. He was part of the New Church Movement. There was a guy named Emanuel Swedenborg, from Sweden, who um, was kind of a mystic from Sweden, and he, he created what he considered the new church. Um, they argued against the Trinity, said, no, the God is one, not, not three, he's one. And, and all, those, uh, all those elements that we see of as God kind of coalesced into the human Jesus, but then re-became God after Jesus' death. So, God became man so that man could become part of God, which we do mystically, by connecting with God and the angels, none of whom fell. I mean, that's ridiculous. Sin um, and hell are just creations of our own minds. We create our own hells. We create our own sin. Anytime that we feel pain, anytime that we feel lost, that's sin. That's hell. And so how could a, an angel fall? No, it doesn't work like that. So no, there's no hell. There's no pain. There's no... Other than... You, this is kind of... Uh, where a, a little bit of, of like Mary Baker Eddy came in with the uh, uh, Church of Christian Science, Christian Jesus Christ Scientist, i.e. the Christian Scientists. Um, this is also sort of something echoed by L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology, this idea of anything that hurts, that's just sin. That's 
sin is anything that hurts. Anything that hurts is sin. That's pretty much all it is. It's just an invention of your own mind. Swedenborganism. Yeah. Is that the symbol then of the church? Yes. It looks very familiar. Doesn't it? Yeah. That's still floating around with things. Is that because it came out of Swedish culture? What? That, that symbol. I, it's interesting because it does have the kind of... The Swedish covenant. It does kind of point. It does kind of point back to that a little bit, doesn't it? Anyway. So do you know if they read the Bible at all? Oh yeah, love the Bible. So I carried a Bible with him all the time. Bible clearly says that God loves you. Clearly says love wins. We have evangelicals who teach Bible classes that say there is no hell, right? Don't we? Okay. Um. So we're also expected to live out God's love. Everywhere. You read your Bible. You know, live out God's love. Treat everybody and everything that you come across with God's love. That's, if everything unpleasant is sin, then everything pleasant is good. So be pleasant, be good, be encouraging, be positive. That's that's what Christians are supposed to do. So, as is often the case, the Swedenborgian people are the nicest people on the block. It's amazing how many times you'll sit there and go, wow, these people are seriously theologically messed up. And they're much better Christians in terms of their actions than we are. Some of the nicest, most Christian-acting people I know are Mormons. They're great people. They're much better Christians in a lot of ways than Christians. They just, unfortunately, aren't Christian. Anyway, following those teachings, Chapman lived a life of strict celibacy, was a devout vegetarian, I mean, darn near vegan. Um... Refuse to harm animals for any reason. Refuse to even make a campfire because it harms the environment. It might harm a tree. You might some animal might stray into your campfire and get hurt. Nope, nope. So I mean, this whole idea of like, oh, I loved all the forest, you know, the woodland creatures. Um, yeah, actually, that's pretty much Johnny Appleseed. Um, he also got along really well with Native American tribes who thought he was nuts. You know, which they respected very much. And then he'd go and he'd tell them about Jesus, how much Jesus loves them. Tons of Swedenborgian tribes floating around out there with that version of Christianity. But also he's like, lived in commune with nature, loved everything. He's like, yep, they totally connected with that. Gotta remember, lots of different versions of Christianity out there, right? Lots of different takes on it. Okay, different take, because we're in 1830. Charles Finney. But it leads a series of revivals. Born in Connecticut, he's a lawyer, trained as a lawyer, and becomes a Presbyterian minister who served in New York City. In fact, where he, t- where he taught the, the Broadway Tabernacle Church, that still exists, that he started up. It's in a new location. Actually, I think that they took over um, Advent Lutheran, is that what it is? Um, downtown in, in New York. Um, and it's gone through a bunch of derivations. It was a Presbyterian church, and then it was a Congregationalist church. Now it's a, a United Church of Christ, um, an extremely liberal United Church of Christ that uh, worships in a Lutheran building. So it's just gone through a lot of, a lot of changes over time. But it still exists, the one that he made back, uh, back in the day. Anyway, but he's most famous as a revivalist preacher. And when I say that, well, uh, most people when I say revival at this point, you think of the revival meetings that we've had, you know, that we've been seeing, and people come to know the Lord and all this kind of stuff. That's not really what we're talking about here. He was more into revivalism, which is this idea of taking existing churches and waking them up. 
existing Christians and waking them up and saying, you've got to do something with, what you, with, with your faith. So it's not evangelism as much as it is shaking Christians and saying, wake up! He had all sorts of different funkies. Now he did. He was an evangelist too. Don't get me wrong. But when he was doing revivalism, what he was talking about is reviving the church itself, waking up the church. Um, anyway, um, it was Finney who was, who was the one who, who coined the, the, the term the burnt district of western New York that we talked about a while back, where he said this whole district has been hit by so much evangelism, it's pointless to preach there. Because it's the only people, he's like, the only people in western New York are people who have heard the word of God and are Christians and are living it out, and people who have heard the word of God and they are inured to it. That's it. There's nobody else there. It's pointless to go do evangelism there. It's a burnt over district. There's, there's, there's not even twigs left to use for kindling. So, ignore it. So part of that, uh, revivalism, Finney emphasized the kind of perfectionism that we've seen growing in uh, the second great awakening that's kicking in here. What do I mean by perfectionism? Anybody remember when we talked about that? What are the perfectionists saying? Okay, then it's good to go into this again. If you're really truly saved, you will get to the point where you no longer sin. You will be perfect. You will work that way. Um, if, you're, if you're not that way, you haven't come far enough. You need to work on it more. You need to keep moving. Society can be perfected. Um, uh, they, will, they will be the ones who tend to say Jesus will, um, uh, will come back at the end of a millennium of really goodness. The society will be brought into perfection and then Jesus will return. Whereas you've got a whole bunch of other people running around going, I'm pretty sure things are going to get worse. And then Jesus is going to return. And then you've got a whole bunch of people going, no, 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 all that's just going on in heaven. You know, it's amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. Remember when we talked about that kind of stuff? Yeah. So the perfectionists tended to sit there and say, actually, you are going to get better and better. Society is going to get better and better. That's what we need to work toward. Not a bad thing to work toward. So we embraced the, the, uh, the Methodist Church. Remember John Wesley talked about this, of, of a second work of grace that's, that cements your salvation. You're saved when you're saved, but then God will have to do something that really makes that real in your heart. Uh, now Wesley said, and that can happen at the same time, is that you, you accept Jesus as your Savior and God, and, 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 and God moves in your heart so that you truly, truly live by that. But Wesley's point is a lot of times people will assent to religion, but they won't have that kind of genuine conversion of life until some point later on. Do you remember when we talked about it? Remember Top Lady wrote that in the original draft of the Rock of Ages and then went, wait, no, I don't believe that. That whole idea of there's a double cure where you're saved from God's wrath and then God saves you from sin. And then later on went, no, 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 I'm going to rewrite that because I've become more Calvinist. So, anyway. <laughs> well, he did. That was the thing. He's just like, oh, I'm a dumb Methodist. Second work of grace. No, no, I'm not. Got to rewrite myself. Yeah. So, um, so Fanny pushed for social justice. He's like, the American society can be moved toward perfectionism and can be moved toward the point where it has no sin. Again, not a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I just don't know that I agree with the theology behind it, that you're ever going to get to the point where you are sinless. But that's certainly where we should point, isn't it? Silly to point anywhere else. So he became an ardent supporter of the abolitionist movement, 
of the Underground Railroad. He was a big supporter of women's rights. He was a big supporter of helping the poor. He's like, let's fix the society. All of which I'm like, yippee! That's, that's good. He was one of the first to allow women to actually read prayers out loud in public. Can you imagine the scandal of it all? So, anyway, um, to help bring that about, he, he used all of his lawyer tricks. Everything they learned about him, he was a really good lawyer. So he made these really, really good arguments. I read some of his sermons, so I'm like, this guy's stinking brilliant. And he had some really good arguments. He also was really good at waffling. Some of the things, it, it's, if you ask people about Finney's theology, it's really hard to pin down. Because he'll say things one place and say something else later, and you... The way he's phrased it, you just, I'm not sure that that's a contradiction. I'm just not sure what you believe on this topic. Because you're, you're waffling, you're saying with enough weasel words on both sides that I'm not sure where you're going with this. Um, but he also was really good at expressing it with, with, with a really eloquent flair and with a lot of emotion and passion and energy. And he's six foot three, these piercing hooded eyes. So he'd come out with this, this big, big, broad shouldered, big guy. Booming voice, brilliant eloquence, very funny, very engaging. Get your emotion. He's got logos and pathos down. And then he pressed for immediate and decisive action. Like lawyers do, you must make a decision. You must make a decision before you leave the courtroom today. And so it wasn't just, I'm interesting, I'm tossing things out. Like, no, he, he created, uh, I think they called it, what is it the anxiety seat, uh, where where they'd have a chair up at the front of the church building. And if you were struggling in life, if you were having issues and you needed prayer, come here and we'll all gather around and pray for you. But do it now. Do it now. I mean, don't sit there and try. Maybe someday I'll just like, if you're having an issue, come pray right now. Otherwise, what kind of Christian are you? Live this out. And I know that, <laughs> I know that that would be a little scary, but it works. Beautifully, people feel you know this love bond every time that they come to. I mean, scary as I'll get out, and then tremendously cathartic. As emotional catharsis goes, uber successful. This kind of preaching very quickly became the norm. It was referred to as new light preachers. Remember, we talked about that a while back. The new light preachers, as opposed to the old light preachers. The old light preachers tended to be very dry, very intellectual, droned on. In fact, they would sit there and say, I refuse to use emotionalism. Why? God should impact your mind. I don't want to just impact your, your passions. That's, that's a fleeting thing. The new light preachers came and go, wah, 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 you know, trying to get all your information. This guy tried to incorporate both. And he's just like, no, I want to be extremely colorful, extremely engaging, extremely bright. I want to hit all of these all at the same time. So he was crazy successful. By the way, this emphasis on including worship, emotion and worship and passion, coupled with the fact that he referred to the, quote, what he called the, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit, when subsequent to salvation you were just super saturated with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit at salvation, but there's a point later where you are just inundated with the Holy Spirit. Points back to Peter saying, oh, he received the Holy Spirit when Jesus breathed on him. And yet, at Pentecost, we're told he was suddenly at that moment, filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit. He's like, yeah, it's like a baptism inside of you. He's the one who coined the phrase, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because of that, he's often seen as the father of modern revivalism, this idea of going church to church and going, wake up! 
but also one of the fathers of modern Pentecostalism. Even though he's not a Pentecostal the way we would tend to look at him now, he at least opens that door for the idea of God coming in and doing something that changes you subsequent to salvation. And every time that the Pentecostal uses the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit, fit. Also the year, Andrew Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act. Okay. What? You make, you make his head shaky. What? No, no, what? Bad, bad news. All agree it is so not cool to, to force somebody to leave their own land, right? Do we, can we all start with that premise? That you walk in and go, nope, we want your land, so you must leave. The whole governmental eminent domain thing. Always bad, right? Eminent domain? No. <laughs> okay, okay, wait, suddenly our, our, our government employee speaks up. Why is it not necessarily always bad? Uh, because if we have a bad intersection, lots of crashes, and we want to fix it, or we have to take somebody's house to make it better, it's for the better of everybody. So. And we'll find a nice place to move to. We're not going to leave anything. Okay, so Randy is saying there are times when eminent domain is a good thing. If there's a perceived problem that requires that you move, we will give you a good price for your land and then make sure you've got some place to go. And that's a good thing, right? can be unless it's abuse. Okay. Now let's take this line of thinking into the Indian Removal Act. Let's look at this complexly, all right? It's far more complicated than this is bad and Andrew Jackson's a jerk, which is the way a lot of people view this. Andrew Jackson's a jerk. He kicked out the, the Indians off their own land. First off, I don't know what happened to this graphic, but first off, um, you've seen there's an increasing amount of violence going on every place, on every front, that American settlers are, are interacting with the Native American tribes there, whether it's in the Northwest or in the Southwest or down in Florida. Every time that they try to coexist, it gets ugly. It just... I remember how many Indian wars we've been going We've got more wars coming up with Indians. Tons of Indian wars all over the place. Sometimes the settlers started it by just taking Indian land. Sometimes the Indians started it. They're like, no, we'll take your money for the land, and then we'll fight anyway. It's not cut and dry as to who's the bad guy, other than these darn American settlers trying to move into Indian territories. That's automatically bad. Anytime anybody wants to move into someplace that somebody else already has, it's bad, right? You want to buy somebody else's house... You're a bad person, right? No. And not necessarily. Because if you're buying it, if you're growing into that area, that doesn't automatically mean it's bad. It can't. Yep. If they want to sell, or if you offer them a fair price, or you offer them a nice enough price that they sell, it's not automatically a bad thing. I'm not pretending that that's what always happened. It's what is what usually happened. No. Usually, usually they offered a fair price, and usually it was enough that the Native Americans let them have the land. I know that we tend not to look at it that way, but in 1830, that was still pretty much usually what happened. Do you remember how many times Harrison worked so nicely with the Indians? It's like, I will make sure that you're taken care of. Even Jackson, we've already seen him, going out of his way to make sure that the Indians are taken care of. I understand what the, the, our reaction sitting here in the 21st century is to say, the universal history of our dealings with Native Americans was bad. I'm like, no, that's just not entirely accurate. That it became in, in, almost consistently bad. And there was a lot of bad 
that, that was happening. But that was not the norm. Now, the norm is violence, but not necessarily we're being mean to the Indians. That's not necessarily the norm in 1830. Yeah. Plus, the Indians were mean to each other. Oh, yeah. They were each other all the time. So when we always blame the white person, that really irritates me. Now, I will say by the time you get to, like, the 1870s, it's 90% us being pretty pretty snarkly bad. Yeah. Well, in Michigan, I think before I left, you were talking about that, but I've been doing some reading, and the Indians actually begged to, uh, to sell their money because they did not, they were not, they were more nomadic yep. and, and fishermen and that kind of thing, so they didn't know what to do with land, and so they were starving. If it hadn't been for John Schoolcraft, who oh, married uh, oh, oh Indian for a wife, she was, he was in Washington, and he was the one that got them land for tribes, and then not only got them, but helped them to know what to do with it. Man, I'm... You guys are just teaching my class this morning for me. This is great. The two modes of living were wildly incompatible. They could not coexist. You simply cannot have landowners and homesteaders coexisting in the same area as nomads who lived off land and took what they wanted. You can't do it. You, Caleb, you just spent all your money to buy four cows. You're starting a herd. You're a, young, you're a young man starting a young family. You've got some young kids. You need the milk for them and everything. I'm a homesteader. I'm going to try this. You guys are the local Native American tribe. And you wander through and eat all of his cows. Because you live off the land and take what you want. That's the way you always have to. And he goes, I got no money to buy new cows. You just ate my cows. And you say, and they were delicious. And he's like, wait! <laughs> How do I feed my children now? I got nothing! I can't even sell anything to feed my family. I can't. You just killed us. To which you guys say, your neighbor's got cows. Just go eat your, their cows. And he's like, I'm not going to steal their cows. And you say, steal what? You can't own a cow? What, do you own the air? Do you own the earth? And he goes, yes, I own this part of the earth. And yes, I own the cows. And you guys say, no, no, no. Assimilate to our culture. Just... Go take everybody else's cows. That's what we've always done. And he says, no, assimilate to my culture. Oh, some stinking cows. And then give them to me. Can you owe me some cows? <laughs> you understand? I'm being silly, but you understand? They cannot coexist. Either everybody has to become nomads and just take everybody else's stuff, which is what the Native Americans did. And now we're back to, they were killing each other all over the place and taking each other's cows and work, not horses, but that's later. But, you know, taking all their, everybody's stuff. That's what that's, when, when there are 14 Indians living on North America, you can do that. But when you've got millions of people living in, in close proximity to each other, that's probably not a good idea for everybody just to take whatever they feel like taking whenever they feel like taking it. So either the Native Americans have to start owning stuff and respecting ownership, or the white settlers need to say, okay, we won't own anything. Everybody just can go wherever they want to go. Don't coexist philosophically. How well, about the Cherokees? Because I thought they really adapted. They did. They did. They assimilated. They, they owned still property. Got punished. Yes, they did. Okay. In the end, the group with the most resources at their disposal is going to win, right? If you have more nomads, it's the Mad Max movie, and the and the nomads have all the weapons and all the gas, then they're going to ransack the town and take all their stuff, right? If you're 1830. And you've got 14 Native Americans who are nomads, 
and 12 million white settlers who have all the guns and things, the settlers are going to win, right? Okay. Some people, now we're going to go back to your, your Cherokee thing. Some people like Washington and Jefferson said we should treat each tribe like a sovereign nation, make treaties with each of them, treat them with respect, right? Just so long as they're civilized, like those Cherokee. I mean, if they own land and speak English and dress appropriately and worship Jesus like God intended, then you should treat them as if they're decent human beings. They're not savages like the rest of them, and those guys are just nuts. But the guy, anybody who's willing to be civilized, you should treat them respectfully. That, that works, right? You guys are all comfortable with that. Anyway, but not every tribe wants to get civilized, strangely enough. Not every tribe says, yeah, I want to throw my own culture to the wind. Uh, you know that whole way that my ancestors have lived for thousands of years? Yeah, let's not do that. Let's just be European, because that's what God intended. Not everybody wanted to do that. They want to hold on their own cultures, even if our own culture can't coexist with the European ones. And it was, in a, it was impossible to do. Jefferson and Washington, yeah, make treaties. He's like, I can't. I can't make treaties on a federal level. Only states can do that. The states have to ratify any treaty that I make. Because it's all state-driven. At this point in history, the federal government doesn't have the authority to make those kind of decisions. Because you have to remember, prior to the Civil War, everything was predominantly state-run. Yeah? What about the Homestead Act? Was that in... Well, that's a little bit later on. That's later. Okay. All right. I'll give you a for instance. 1832, the Supreme Court. Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation in Georgia, saying, you know what, neither individuals nor the state of Georgia can just come into Indian lands and take Cherokee lands. They're a sovereign nation. You don't get to do that. Right? And you were saying, and, and, and Andrew Jackson went <laughs> to that, right? No! That's not entirely accurate. 1828, they discovered gold on the Cherokee lands in Georgia. And so people started invading the area, disregarding the Supreme Court's rulings. Governor Wilson Lumpkin went so far as to imply if Jackson actually tried to enforce the ruling, he would have to send federal troops to go to war against the Georgia militia. So, Jackson, are you actually going to support the, the, the Supreme Court? If you do, it's war against your own states. Are you going to go to war against your own states to defend the Cherokee? The reason I bring this up is not to say that Jackson was such a wonderful guy, he loved Indians so much, but to say, nah, it's the states that disregarded the Supreme Court law. And what are you going to do about it if you're Jackson? So who said that one? Who said what one? Okay, you're, you're missing the context of it. No, it's a law. It's like, and what do I do with it? How do I do this? Because the states, most of them in the south, uh, where, where most of the larger Indian nations still existed, said, I, we have no motivation to believe the federal government. Why do we need to do anything the federal government says? States' rights. There is a reason to understand why, to a lot of people, the Civil War was about states' rights. Now, a lot of it was states' rights to do things like slavery. So, I mean, it is still about slavery. But a lot of it was the South going, federal schmeral, we're doing our own thing. You can't sit there in Washington and tell us what we're going to do with our own land and our own people. Even if you tried, you're going to just go to war with us. This is part of why Jackson hated uh, Henry Clay, is because Clay came up with this whole, why don't we just cut the land in half, 
We'll draw a line, and everything south of here is slave states, everything north of here is free states. Thomas Jefferson's like, you do realize that that will cause a, a, a civil war. Within a couple generations, there will be a civil war for that. And Jackson's like, you're so stupid to Henry Clay. Really hated Henry Clay. Anyway. <laughs> he did. Now, if you know, if you can't picture Andrew Jackson hopping up and down when he's talking, you don't know Andrew Jackson. Very few options. He could go to war against his own states. He could send federal troops in and say, you will follow this. He considered it, but it's just not going to work. You could demand that all Native American tribes be forced, like the, like the Cherokee did willingly, be forced to assimilate to European culture. But he'd go on record several times saying, no. I'm not necessarily, like I said, it's not squeaky clean by any stretch. But he's like, I actually have respect for their culture. I understand their culture. No, I'm not going to make them have to be us. I refuse to do that. Remember, he even has an adopted uh, son who is Native American. He's like, no, I, I'm not going to force people to throw their own culture to the wind. He could follow either of the prevailing public opinions. There's this whole group of people sitting there not around Native Americans sitting there in New York City, sitting there in Philadelphia going, can't we all just live together? To which you go, no. You can't just live together. You have to assimilate to one another, at least somewhat. You can't just have nomadic bands wandering around the streets of Philadelphia taking what they want. We call those criminals, right? Second growing opinion is that the U.S. Army should just wipe out all Native Americans. That would solve the problem. So there's a large number of people, especially in the South, going, just kill them all. The idea of that famous concept, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, which, by the way, people often attribute to Philip Sheridan, and he didn't say it. To his dying day, he's like, I never said that. Or even the derivation of that that people often said. Is, uh, that's, and, and I believe him, because that's exactly the sort of sentiment he would say. So if he said, oh, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I just never said that. I, I tend to believe him and go, yeah, okay. Because that seemed to be how he lived. But if he said, yeah, I never said that. Very clever little line, but I never said it. I tend to believe him that he never said it. Anyway. Or Jackson could find another way. What did we just talk about with eminent domain? If there's a perceived problem that can be eliminated, if we remove you from your land, pay you fairly, and make sure you have some place to stay, then it can be a good thing, right? Didn't we just make that argument? Government employee just made that argument. Okay, so 1830. Now, I'm saying that Randy supports the Indian Removal Act. <laughs> Hear me. Okay, 1830, Jackson signs the Indian Removal Act, which gave various tribes some options. The first option is they could just assimilate into American culture. You want to own land? You want to be part of it? Now, there's some weird rules about you can own land, but you can't own the title to the land because you're an Indian. <sighs> weird stuff. But anyway, you can't assimilate into American culture. You can be like us. Throw your own culture to the wind. If you're willing to do that, you can stick around. Or you could sell your land for a reasonable profit. We will make sure that places like Georgia gives you a reasonable profit on the land that you are nomadic on. And we are going to give you free land. You can take that profit that you just made off of your land, pure profit, and we will give you free lands in the Oklahoma Territory. Because that's not a state yet. That's federal land. So tell you what, 
The states are fighting us everywhere we go. North Carolina is fighting us. Georgia is fighting us. And they want to eradicate you, and there's not a heck of a lot we can do about that short of going to war against our own states. But if you move to federal lands, you can come under federal protection, and we will give you federal assistance. Now, I'm going to ask a loaded question. Is that, by definition, an evil act? Why? And the act says, even if you assimilate, you have to go? No. Is this, by definition, automatically an evil act? Yeah. It makes difference if their land in Mississippi was to their liking and um, very fertile. They could grow crops and whatever, and Oklahoma was a dust bowl. Then it's not so nice. I really like my, my, my home here on the corner. I understand that it will save lives and that you really want to expand the intersection, but I don't want to move. Okay, so the problem isn't that you like your Mississippi home, it's that you don't like your Oklahoma home. Right, well, and it, you know, the whole, you know, we try and, uh, when we help them find a house, find something equal and compatible and, yep. and so on. And I'm saying Mississippi may have great soil, great right. growing place to have crops, and you can get to Oklahoma and it can be a desert. Now again, so that's what I'm saying. Not everything in the Oklahoma Territory was cruddy. Oh, that's right. and, 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 and the original thing was pretty much anywhere in the Oklahoma Territory. Knock yourself out. The problem with the Indian Removal Act, I agree, doesn't it's a cookie cutter solution. It's this large issue, and they try to deal with it with eminent domain across the board so long as you're Native American. I have problems with the idea of overarching cookie cutter solutions to things, just philosophically in and of itself. But this is basically just eminent domain trying to, to save lives and in its own way trying to help the Indians. Because they're like, you're either going to force be forced to lose your culture or you're going to get slaughtered by people or you'll have to go to war otherwise. Or we can actually give you federal land. Take care of you. At this stage in history, it is not an inherently evil law. I think it's an inherently flawed law. And it almost immediately got abused and then got flagrantly abused as time went on. But it didn't start as an inherently evil law. At least that's what Jackson was trying to do. He was trying to make the best of a bad situation. That way, Jackson said, you can retain your cultural heritage, you can retain your beliefs, or not, but you can avoid chafing with the states that I can't really do anything about. He also wrote, let's be honest, let's be honest, nobody in their right mind says you should have just left the Native Americans the way they are. Nobody actually believes that. You don't say there were millions of people starving in Europe and we should have just left the North American continent to the 14 Native Americans who were living here in the woods, killing each other. That's, there is no noble savage. They were pure and undefiled and they lived an idyllic existence before we came here. No. But we brought culture very whitish, you know. But you know, we brought culture. We we brought advancements. We brought medicine. We we we've grown in science. We've created all this indu industrial growth. We're bringing democracy to the world. Should we have all just starved in Europe because there was ample land and resources in North America, but we wanted them to have 
20 miles in between families because we don't have 20 inches between our families. He said, to be honest, throughout history, good, bad, or different, whether you think this is a good thing or a bad thing, it's a truth. Throughout history, people have moved. They've gone from one place to another. And they've either been killed by the Aboriginal people or they dominate those Aboriginal people. That's, that's what happens. When we first got to America, the Indians killed us. And then they didn't anymore. And so either they have to assimilate to our culture or we have to assimilate to them. I will give him credit with this, is that that is basic realpolitik. It's going, morality aside, what is the way things actually tend to work? And this is the way things actually tend to work. So i got to make the best of a bad situation. Am I supportive of wiping out the Indians in 1830? No, which is why I came up with another solution. But let's be honest, this wasn't going to end well for them. Or it wasn't going to end well for us. So I did what I could do. Again, I'm not saying that he was a great guy. And I'm not saying he was a lover of the Indian. He, he, he uh, adopted an Indian in his own, own family. He wrote about the importance of allowing them to have their own belief system and not just forcing them to assimilate. It's a lot of things that he wrote positively. But there's an immediate public reaction to this. There's some people like, I can't believe Congress would kick people out of their own home. can't believe that the president would sign such a bill. Especially since the, the, the Supreme Court just said we can't do that. I can't believe that. Other people went, that's stinking brilliant. Won by a landslide victory in the next election. I mean, massive victory. Because they're like, you solved the problem. You fixed it. So which is he? Is he somebody who did something smart? Or is he somebody who did something vile? To which you should say, little column B, little column A. Very quickly. And here's where the main problem comes. For all those who might be hearing me say, there was nothing wrong with the Native American Removal Act. You're like, yeah, there was, because it immediately devolved into like forced evacuation. It started off as genuinely voluntary. You can choose what you want to do. I kind of think you're going to want to go out west rather than be forced to assimilate. In fact, there was just a recent movie a couple years ago about the horrors of forced assimilation. Poor young Indian boy forced to become and pretend to be white. Oh, that's just horrible. What are the options? So, almost immediately, state militias started forcibly evacuating people. You got federal land out west, you go there. Well, I'm still trying to decide. I don't have to make that decision by, in, until 1838. That's the, that's the law. By 1838, that's when I have to be gone. I don't have to make that decision yet. <laughs> yeah, but we're the Georgia state militia. You must leave now. And we want your gold. Tribal units get separated from one another, so your tribe just got broken up. Or, maybe even worse, got lumped together with other even enemy tribes. We've been enemies for generations. They're like, yeah, well, you're all Indians. Go. Which we did again later on in Ellis Island. You're European. Well, I'm Italian. He's German. Yeah, you're European. Go. You're all the same. Families are being uprooted against their wills. In fact, later on, as it goes along, they're not even allowed to gather up their woods, their goods before being sent out west. Not originally. That was, in fact, there were provisions in the, in the law about how you were supposed to make sure that they were taken care of. Every family had to have blah, 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 blah. Eventually, that all goes by the wayside, because once you start moving people out, it gets a lot easier to be moving people out. And federal protection and provision, which is built into the law, very quickly becomes imprisonment and control. We will make sure you have food. It's horrible food. We wouldn't feed our horses, but, you know, you have food. You have land. Okay, I know we said pretty much anywhere in that large territory of federal land, but we've got a special reservation just for you that's the worst land we could possibly find. 
Because once you start acting unfairly to people, you're going to justify more and more worse and worse unfairness. By 1838, the forced re relocation westward became a death march known as the Trail of Tears. The Trail of Tears specifically is talking about that 1838 march. It's not all the marches that came before that, which I'm not saying were great, but specifically 1838 because that's the end of, that's their deadline. And it's a, they have to go now. And so people, the militias came in and the army came in and said, you must leave now. And so a lot of them were, were forced out in the heat of summer. That's when it started. And they were, or they were continued to have to be marched out during the coldest parts of the winter. And then by, by, in 1838, by the end of the deadline, the army came in and said, no, you don't have, there's no time for you to gather up your belongings, make sure that we can get some food for the winter months. And they're like, oh, you're out now. This is our land now. Go. That's where the worst of it came in, where people are being genuinely kicked off their land involuntarily. Because you had eight years to figure this out, seven years in terms of what the blog had passed, to figure all this out, and you haven't left yet. So I don't even care if you're Cherokee or anything. If you've got a mustache, the Cherokee sometimes did, you know, and you, and, you, and you have a written language and you have the constitution things, state of Georgia, the state of Mississippi, state of Alabama, we all have a treaty with you. And who cares what the federal government says? You've got to leave. You've got to leave right now. Nearly a third of the people died on that particular march. For what it's worth, that's the Van Buren administration, not the Jackson administration. The Jackson administration, I'm not going to say that it's okay and that he was a good guy, but the Jackson administration passed an act that had provisions in it that make it more like eminent domain. Just a cookie-cutter eminent domain and sending you to a place you may not necessarily want to go. But he's like, I'll save your life and I'll save your culture. The Van Buren administration said, get it done, just kick him out. I'm done with him. Now, say all this again, not to say Jackson's okay, but this is bigger than Andrew Jackson's a jerk. Okay? 1830, also the year that Joseph Smith began the Mormon church, right? We talked about that last time. Published his first edition of the Book of Mormon, started baptizing people into his new church, 1830. 1831, he picked the first of his additional wives. Because I don't know if you knew this, but in, in early Mormonism, they practiced polygamy. Probably were unaware. Yeah, no, you can't have been unaware of that. He didn't start openly preaching about it yet, by the way. Didn't even tell his wife, Emma, about this to begin with. In fact, he only informed Emma a decade later when she found him in bed with Elijah Partlet, Partridge. She walked in on them in bed, and he's like, Ah! I meant to tell you, but God wants me to practice polygamy. Which very quickly became, God wants us all to practice polygamy. Strangely, Emma never liked that. <laughs> Through her entire life, she spoke against plural marriage and, and against polygamy. So this is a sin. This is against what God's covenants are. Stayed with well, she didn't have a lot of options, but yes. 1831... He told 12-year-old Mary Rollins that she was destined to become one of his wives. Um, she balked at the idea and said, that's silly. But he informed her, no, no, no. We were all created before the beginning of time. We were all part of the soul pool in heaven. Um, and we've been sexually active in heaven in the pre-existence before time. You and I. So it's okay. God created us to have sex with one another because you and I have already done it. You just weren't aware of that yet. It's okay, isn't it? It's not predatory to do that, is it? Yeah, I think so. She wasn't the first girl that he told that to over the years, though. 
1830, his conduct with the Stowell girls had come under scrutiny. Uh, back in 1825, he'd worked with their father using his, his peep stones to look for a silver mine. For, by the way, they had never found a silver mine. Doesn't matter. He got paid to look for it, not paid to find it. And so while he was staying with the Stowells, uh, well, he got in trouble because of his dallying with the teenage girls, the teenage daughters. Um, he tried to seduce Emma's 16-year-old cousin, Eliza Winters, telling her adultery is no crime. I mean, it's just a little fun. It's no big deal. 16-year-old Nancy Johnson, the whole town of Hiram, Ohio, came out to castrate him because of how he treated Nancy. Dragged him out, ripped his clothes off, brought the town doctor to castrate him. And at the last minute, the doctor couldn't bring himself to do it. He's like, I just can't do it, guys. So they tarred and feathered him instead. Um, There's a young girl named Vienna that was staying with them for a little while. And when Emma was asleep, he would slip out of his bed at night and slip into Vienna's bed. Um, that's not predatory, is it? Young servant girl named uh, Hill. Um, Emma almost didn't forgive him about that one. But, but he explained to her that he was really, really sorry and it wouldn't happen again, and so she forgave him. Uh, there's a teenager named Fanny Alger that he slept with. Actually, it was the Fanny Alger affair in 1835 that drove a wedge between him and the co-president, Oliver Cowdery. Remember Cowdery? This is the guy who had uh, transcribed Smith's notes to make the Book of Mormon. He confronted Smith in 1837 about this. He's like, there are more and more people coming out saying, you've been grossly sexually inappropriate and immoral. Um, there's eyewitness testimony that's come out that they watched you having sex with Alger in a local barn. Um, so Smith excommunicated him. Because, of course, Cowdery accused him of adultery. First two of nine charges brought against him were, number one, that Cowdery uh, supported lawsuits against church leaders. There were people who brought lawsuits against church leaders, i.e. Joseph Smith, saying that he had been sexually inappropriate with people. And Cowdery said, people get to do that. Second one is that Cowdery was, quote, seeking to destroy the character of President Joseph Smith by falsely insinuating that he was guilty of adultery, unquote. He must be excommunicated. He's that much of a sinner. Same sexual problems later drove a wedge between Smith and church apostle Orson Pratt. Name may sound familiar to you. He's another big apostle in the Mormon church. Smith propositioned Pratt's wife, Sarah. Sarah complained to her married friend, Lucinda. She's like, this is horrible. I mean, I'm, I'm married to one of his best friends. And he comes up and he starts telling me that it's a good thing to do and he wants to have sex with me. Lucinda just laughed and said, I don't see anything horrible. I've been his mistress for four years. I mean, it's fine. He's the, le he's the leader of the church. He has needs. It's okay. Sarah later described his tactics. This is an interesting quote. Joseph did not think of a marriage or a sealing ceremony for many years. This, that, this idea of doing this polygamous thing. Uh, he used to just state to his intended victims, as he did to me, God doesn't care if we have a good time. If only other people don't know it. It's okay. He only introduced a marriage ceremony when he had found out that he couldn't get certain women without it. He wanted to have sex with a lot of different women. Eventually, when he realized he could get more flies with marriage than he could with seduction, he's like offering marriage. So suddenly, instead of just, I'm the church leader and I get to have sex with whomever I want, it became, 
Here's a doctrine of polygamy now and plural marriage. When the church held a public service to affirm Smith's character against all the clearly false charges of sexual immorality, because that's never a red flag, right? If I said, we need to have a public worship service so that everybody can come together and as part of the worship service affirm the fact that I have good character and I am not sexually immoral, wouldn't that be a red flag in your mind? Did we have to have some sort of public service to affirm this? Anyway, Pratt said, you know what? I'm just not going to come to that. That's it. I'm just going to recuse myself from it. I won't be part of that. I'm not going to come and speak against him, but I can't come and affirm him today. So, so Smith excommunicated because clearly he's, he's supporting all those people who are saying that he's got bad character. Smith allowed him to be rebaptized and come back into the church once Pratt apologized to him later. You apologize to me. Pratt goes, you, you propositioned my wife. You apologize to me. Publicly. Apologize to me. Then I'll let you back into my church. Why were people going to be in this church? So what was, is all this just whitewashed and glossed over? I mean, what, what Gosh, do yes. Mormons, I mean. Most Mormons sit there and go, either they don't know about some of the timeline, or they'll say, yeah, he had multiple wives. But it was okay. Haven't you read the Doctrine and Covenants? God affirmed multiple wives for a time. For a time. For a time. The Book of Mormon specifically calls polygamy an abomination. Anybody who practices any form of polygamy is evil. Book of Mormon, very clear about that. It says David and Solomon had multiple wives and God considered it an, an abomination. Doctrine and Covenants says you must have polygamy. Polygamy is a gift from God. Why David and Solomon had multiple wives and God blessed them through it. Jesus had multiple wives. That's why they crucified him. Because they're bad people. Because he was just following God's dictates. Doctrine and Covenants flat out contradicts the Book of Mormon. Which is why you can read the Book of Mormon and just say, ooh, bad history. But the theology is only marginally wacky. You read the Pearl of Great Price. You read the Doctrine and Covenants. It's tremendously wacky. So, most, and, 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 and so then it says, yes, polygamy is a good thing. Once Utah wanted to become a state, suddenly God said, now's not the time to be polygamous anymore. Because once they tried to be a state, the United States said, no, you're a bunch of polygamous, wacky people. No, you can't, we're not going to allow you into the Union. And so, right after they were told they weren't going to be allowed to be part of the Union because they were holding on to polygamy, the apostle leading the church got a revelation from God that that is, that is not the case. In fact, wrote a letter to the federal government saying, I don't know who said we've ever practiced polygamy, but we've never practiced polygamy. That has never been a practice of the Mormon church. And then later preached a sermon saying, it is no longer a practice. What I meant was, it's no longer a practice of the Mormon church. That was just something we needed to do to begin with, to launch the church. Mormonism is rife with contradictions. In fact, I sent you the, the material uh, of Judy. The most, uh, uh, the healthiest way to try to practice apologetics with Mormons is to specifically bring out those contradictions and say, do you understand? You don't even agree with you, much less with the Bible or with history. In all, he had 27 to 40 wives, additional wives, not including all the people he just had sex with. Um, one third of them were between 14 and 20 in age, 14 and 20 years of age. Another third were already married to somebody else. That's the character of the guy who started the religion. Again, if I were explaining all that to Mormons, they would sit there and go, oh, you've got the names right, but you're just painting it in its worst light. He had multiple wives because God gave him multiple wives. He was a wonderful man. Wonderful men do not are not sexual predators. 
Therefore, what he did was not sexual predation, because he's a wonderful man. By the way, have you ever heard that there are some people who still make that argument about, my husband's a wonderful man. I understand that my daughter says that he has done something inappropriate, but my husband's a wonderful man. Wonderful men are not sexual predators. Therefore, I don't understand why my daughter is lying like this. Let's go, um, really? This is only part of the reason why the church kept pulling up ties and leaving. They were originally part of that burnout district, right? And they left to, uh, New York to go to first to Kirtland, Ohio, which they had to leave following the incident of Nancy Johnson in nearby Hiram. You can't stick around after you're been tarred and feathered. That's unwise. So then they went to what they referred to as the city of Zion, outside of Independence, Missouri. This, this is the Holy Land. This is where God has brought us. God wants a seat of the Mormon Church to be Independence, Missouri. He must have been fairly charismatic. Phenomenally charismatic. It's phenomenally charismatic. The argument that everybody else is wrong, but we're the only ones that's right, man, that is a huge draw. Um, if you are a good Mormon, you get to be God of your own planet. That's a huge draw. Um, just all these different things. You just go, we're different from everybody else. Don't you want novelty? Don't you want to be different? We're the ones who are right. Everybody else is wrong. Man, that's great. You get to, if you do everything right, you get to be God. That's awesome. That's what worked with Adam and Eve, isn't it? Was he ever in trouble legally, though, oh. with the government? I mean, to oh, be... you're beautiful. I would think... Yeah. There was a, the Missouri Mormon War in 1838, where he got in trouble legally. Yeah, there you go. Locals didn't enjoy being told that they were enemies of God who were squatting on God's land that God intended to give to the Mormons. Like the Canaanites of old, you you sinfully got to our land first. And we'd just like you to leave, please. Locals didn't appreciate that. Mormon uh, preacher Sidney Rigdon preached a sermon, uh, the, the salt sermon, where he said anybody who stands against Mormon leadership, whether that's a Mormon or a non-Mormon, is like Salt has lost its saltiness. All of this is foul, and it deserves to be trodden underfoot. We need to trample anybody who ever questions Mormon leadership. I don't care whether you're Mormon or not. There was a group called the, there was a group called the Danites that arose within Mormonism that um, became their own vigilante squad. They would go set fire to people's houses, rough people up on the streets, if, you, if, if they thought that you were questioning Mormon leadership too much. You don't get to question. Jesus never liked questions. So, <laughs> open, absolutely. So, what did he look like? <laughs> I'm sure for a while, not so great. I mean, that's second third degree It can be, yeah. It depends on how hot the tar is. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was not happy for an extended period of time. Open fighting breaks out, and I'm not going to say this is all on the Mormons, because there were settlers who were just responding to this badly. There also people who were like, you ain't like us, kill. You know, it's, it's the way people are. Open fighting broke out. The county militia was called in because they called the state governor and said, could you send the state militia in? And the governor said, nah, it sounds like a local thing. Just let them fight it out. Tells you something about 1830s. The state governor, the governor says, there's local mobs versus this local cult. Let them fight in the streets. Whichever one survives, you win. That's fine. Problem solved. So they finally said, no, we're leaving Missouri and we're going to we're going to go to a place where we're going to make our tabernacle forever. This, this is where God wants us to stay. Nauvoo, Illinois. That is the seat of Mormon 
everything. That is the headquarters. Nauvoo, Illinois. Massive city of Nauvoo, Illinois. Right? You've heard of Nauvoo, right? Yeah. Yeah. Smith is the leader of the church. Yeah, okay. Well, you got a problem. Yeah. He's the leader of the church in Nauvoo. He's the leader of the church. He's also the mayor. He's also the head of the municipal court. He controlled, he's the boss hog of Nauvoo, Illinois, which is how he avoided being extradited back to Ohio and Missouri by appealing to the municipal court. Anytime that somebody said, by the way, there are still charges against you in Missouri and Ohio. And so people would come and say, hey, municipal court, you need to turn this guy over. Who's in charge of municipal court? Joseph Smith. So he said, well, let's leave this to the municipal court. Guys, what do you think? And they'd say, we think he's fine, and he's our mayor, and you need to leave now. It's heaven, man. It's heaven. You can do anything you want. And it's seen it in 1845. Nauvoo had a population of 12,000 people, second only in Illinois to Chicago, which only had 15,000 people. So, so when I said the bustling metropolis of, uh, of Nauvoo, and y'all go, <laughs> no, it was rapidly becoming the main city in Illinois. Every Mormon everywhere was coming to Nauvoo and living there. Smith's co-president, a guy named William Law, spoke out against plural marriage. He said, you know, I don't think it's good for you to be the mayor and then the head of the municipal court and the head of the religion. This theocracy is going to your head and you're abusing your power. I don't think this is appropriate. So Smith excommunicated. <laughs> Again, I want you to see the pattern going on here. So Law started his own version of the faith, the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's like, oh no, everything that Joseph Smith taught is still true. It's still, there was still the place. There were still uh, the people who became angels. The Indians are still people who were cursed by God, and that's why they got dark skin. No, 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 no. This, everything that he taught is still true. He just no longer lives by what we believe. The Mormon church is good. He, Smith, is just no longer really part of the Mormon church because he's fallen. The power has gone to his head. So it's interesting. He didn't leave the Mormon church. He's like, no, Smith left the Mormon church. So we have the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He started a, a, a dissenting local newspaper called the Nauvoo Expositor. I'm going to write stories that show what's really going on. I'm going to print articles against polygamy. I'm going to quote scripture and say, I'm going to quote the Book of Mormon and say why polygamy is bad. I'm going to speak against his leadership. I'm going to give documented evidence that he is corrupt. I want people to understand the truth. And Smith is absolutely disgusted by this. He's like, how dare you tell me that I abuse my power? So he authorized the burning of the newspaper office to show that he, show that he would never abuse his power. Yeah. A couple years, a couple years ago, there was, a, uh, there was a cartoon that was, I think, in, in one of the London papers that showed uh, Muslims being melodramatically militant. And, and killing people right and left. And um, an imam said, that is ridiculous. How dare he speak out against Islam like that? Jihad against this guy. Kill this man. Like, you do understand. You, you just proved his point, right? You, he drew a cartoon saying you're willing to kill people at the drop of a hat. How dare he? Yes, let's kill him. No, you're proving his point. sat there and said, okay, I even have been more or less following you, but you can't, you can't do that. You can't just burn down a newspaper office because he didn't like what he said. So Smith and his brother Hiram were arrested, but while they sat in the county jail, because you couldn't put him in the municipal jail, he owned the municipal jail, put him in the county jail, waiting trial on the county level, a mob burst in and assassinated both of them. 
That's the end of Joseph Smith. It was pretty extreme, but it's also the way most people treated yeah, things back then. As soon as, as soon as you just turn on somebody inside someone you love, now hate. Well, so there is nothing faster. The, the interesting thing is the mob was made up of people who hated Joseph Smith and people who used to love Joseph Smith. And so you just go, yep. And, and mob justice, I remember reading an article, golly, years ago, years ago, that made an argument that, that uh, sheriff's jails were built like fortresses not to keep people in, but to keep people out. That, that if you're waiting for trial, most people said, well, let's just lynch him now. And so, the, so those old 50s movies where the sheriff stands on the front and says, you know, I've got a shotgun, and no, you can't take it. We're waiting for the county circuit judge to come, right? Yeah, that's actually pretty solid. But, so was this true the Illinois Mormon War broke out, where the Mormons erupted into violence, and everybody erupted into violence against the Mormons, and it was just this big bloodbath. How dare you kill our people? Well, you killed it. Well, you burned the... Well, I burned... Now you're... Between Mormon and Mormon? Between Mormon and Mormon, between Mormon and non-Mormon, armed violence in the streets all over the place. Tons of people left Nauvoo. Violence coming from all sorts of sides because it's everything erupted. Because there's nothing like burning down a newspaper office and then getting assassinated for it that you just go, okay, both sides are just going to be hateful now. Because that's human nature, is that we'll respond to violence with violence. And the Mormons are forced to move even further west to Utah, which is why they went to Utah. They're like, how can we get as far away from everybody else as we possibly can? So who That's an interesting question. There was this big, this big argument about succession. Does it have to be somebody in Joseph Smith's line? Some people said, absolutely. They went off. Other people said, no, no, no. It has to be somebody of God's choosing. He chose Joseph Smith, and so he also chose Brigham Young. He's the next guy to, to lead us. So now there's at least three Mormon churches. There's the true Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. There's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And there's the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This movement that said, we exist because too many people have too many denominations. You go, you've existed for 15 years, and you've got multiple denominations that are killing each other over things. But Joseph Smith, the ancestor, Brigham Young, and then this law guy? Yeah, but this never really went too that much. Never went to, okay. So mainly Brigham Young and a Joseph Smith, Smith ancestor? The third, yeah. yeah. Okay. By the way, the Utah Mormon War was in 1857. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> wow. So, synopsis. What have we talked about today? How would you perceive what we've talked about today? Anybody can have a church. <laughs> yeah! And by the way, all the Catholics are going, See? Yeah, this is why we said individual interpretation is inherently bad. You can't do that. You need to trust tradition more than your interpretation of the Bible. And all the Protestants go, it's not just my, it's the Bible. you got to trust the Bible more than tradition. Boom, boom, boom. Got churches of Christ coming in going, tradition, mission. trust the Bible. Of course, it's my interpretation of the Bible. we got everybody in the western state of New York, you know, it seems to be going, ah, new religion. In fact, next time we'll start with William Miller from western New York. Starting of his own Adventist religion. So yes, it's this it's it's up for grabs. Everybody believes whatever they feel like believing. You've got a whole bunch of people trying to figure out how to deal with people coming at things from totally different perspectives. I'm not gonna say that 
Finney was a white hat or a black hat, or Johnny Appleseed was a white hat or a black hat, or Jackson was a white hat or a black hat, or Joseph Smith, I'm going to say, pretty dark colored hat. Um, but, but the idea of going over and over and over, you've got people trying to figure this out and being willing to kill each other to figure it out. Yeah? I was thinking today, you know, things started out well by giving the Cherokees maybe a choice, mm -hmm. but then you have change in administrations and change of people. You really need people to watch those. And I'm just thinking of the refugee crisis in Europe. Okay, bring everyone back to Turkey. That sounds great, except when you look at Turkey as a record of bringing, forcing people back to Syria. I mean, they just, you can't trust yep. what's going on. You just need some, it sounds good, so everybody gets on board, but you need people to constantly be vigilant to watch Excellent. what happens and for the human rights of the people once the laws have been made. Excellent. To make sure. In fact, I'll even, across the, I'll even apply that across the board and say, couldn't you make that argument about Western New York? Saying, yeah. oh, it's evangelized. Could you disciple it? Could you please make sure that, that you, you, you actually walk with these people? Um, everybody's looking for simple, quick answers to complex, long-term solutions and things. It's like, we need to work on this long term. We need to work on this intelligently. We need to work on this relationally. We need to work on this. We need to build into it on this institutional level, the idea of following up on all this kind of stuff. Boy, this should tell you lots of things about child raising, about evangelism. The idea of going, what's the one thing I could do to make my child right? Just go. Spend 18 years making your child right. That's the one thing you can do. Now, if you want, we can unpack that a bit more. But in Everybody looks for simple answers to complicated issues, and it's not like that. You need to make sure that you have wisdom for an extended period of time. That's probably Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you. Though this world seems extremely complicated and hard to follow, you know what's going on. You know the attitudes of people's hearts. Lord, our hearts are fallen, even, even, if, even if we wanted to argue that the Indian Removal Act started as value-neutral even, it so quickly became evil because we just automatically treat people badly when we can. So I pray, Lord, forgive us for when power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Help us to trust in your power, your authority, and help us to do that over the long haul. We give this to you in Jesus' name.